guilt and shame are probably the two biggest feelings or emotions, whatever you want to call them, that keep an addict or an alcoholic drinking or drugging. Because that look on their face, right? That night, yes, I spent the night with them. And then I went on my merry way and I, I felt so guilty and ashamed of how far I have gotten into my drug and alcohol use that I swore I, I didn't want them to ever see me like that again. All right, welcome back everyone to the Redemption Road podcast. I'm your host, Doc John. Here on Redemption Road, we like to talk to high performers and hear about their life hacks and how they got past the most difficult of circumstances so that you can live a better life going forward. Today's guest, he's a motivational speaker and an author and a substance abuse counselor. He's also the voice and host you hear behind the mic on the Fearless Happiness podcast. He's a loving husband and proud father and lives in Fallbrook near the greater San Diego metropolitan area in California. It's my pleasure to introduce Max Naist. Max, thank you for being here. Welcome, sir. Uh, thank you for having me, uh, Doc John. Thank you. Uh, to me, this is such an honor and a privilege to do something like this. So the, the honor is all mine. Oh, I'm certainly happy to have you and definitely honored that you could take the time to be with us today because uh you got a lot of knowledge, and uh, I look forward to helping a lot of people with this. So uh, I guess let's just dig in. Um, so let's let's get started with, uh, I want to hear a little more about your personal struggles uh, here on Redemption Row. It's it's all about, uh, you know, how people get past the worst of, of struggles and the worst of life events. And, you know, whether it's traumas, whether it's addictions, uh, whatever it might be, I, I love to hear about, you know, what other people went through and how they got through it. So I'm going to put you on the hot seat a little bit. I want to hear a little bit about how some of the struggles that you had going for, you know, at the start. And um, and then we'll talk a little more about how you got through them. Awesome. Yeah. So some of the struggles, I'm a recovering alcoholic and addict. Um, Methamphetamine and uh, alcohol were my two drugs of choice, as they say. And, um, you know, I, I was like everybody else back in high school, right? Little dabble here and dabble there go to the backyard parties after football games you know or or whatever um and back then a little did i heed the signs right or the red flags like especially my senior year where you know when everybody's done partying i'm still looking for other people to to party with me at two o'clock three o'clock in the morning and uh um and little did I know, you know, until I was a year sober that my father was an alcoholic. And then I learned from my mother that her her um, her biological father, who who died um, when she was young, <clears throat> was an alcoholic and an addict also. But see, his addiction wasn't by choice. Right. He was a prisoner of war back in World War II when the Japanese tried to invade Indonesia. And he was shot by the Japanese, right? And and back then, all they did was take the bullet out and then give him morphine and say, here you go, be on your way. You know what I mean? Like, gotcha. deal with... So he became addicted to morphine. And then, you know, as my mother would tell me, he he was an alcoholic. and um, But she he died uh, when she was, I want to say, 13 or something. You know, either between the age of 11 and 13. Um, I don't remember. 
exactly though but uh according to my mom she was the apple of his eye right so he kind of quit drinking because she threatened to leave home if he didn't stop drinking gotcha anyway so that's a little history i got addiction on both sides of my family my father's side and my uh uh mother's side and i you know a couple brothers i have a brother and we'll get into it but he uh he lost his battle to addiction and committed suicide so wow um you know but i have when that happened max that was six years ago so i was 48 when that happened um he was 46 when he committed suicide uh yeah he was sober him and i got sober around the same time he had eight years and then relapsed which i only knew of the first relapse but i guess apparently the second one is what threw him over the edge and and that's what he thought his answer would be and you know we can get into that too but um I have an older brother who's 39 years clean, been doing NA since he got clean and sober, right? So, and then I have a brother who doesn't really work a program or anything, but he's dry, as they say, but he's sober, which is good. And that's uh, my brother that's between me and my oldest. And um, and then the, none of the girls in my family seem to have ever struggled with addiction, but the boys, oh yeah, it ran, it ran deep, as they say. But, um, you know, and I knew... If, if if I were to be honest with you back in high school, I should have known, right, that drugs and alcohol were becoming an issue. But here's what happened, right? So uh, my senior year, as um, I was looking forward to graduation, right, barely going to graduate. I was getting told by my mom. No one thought I was going to graduate because all I did, like I said, if it wasn't football season, it was party season, right? And, um, and like any – well, not like any, but I shouldn't say that. For me, it was started – you know, experimenting with marijuana. And then I became, you know, an avid smoker of marijuana. And then probably my junior year of high school is when I started, uh, you know, dabbling in the harder drugs, like I've done acid or cocaine. Cocaine was big back then when I was in high school. So I started dabbling in cocaine. Back in the 1980s? 1980s, exactly. I graduated in 1986, right? So cocaine was the thing. And, you know, and I was partying and you know, I wasn't really taking care of the things I needed to take care of. And I remember just having that talk. Well, actually, my mom came in my room and woke me up one weekend, right? It was like 12 or one o'clock in the afternoon. And she was not very happy with me. And she said, you know, look, uh, you got some choices here, right? But you're not going to do this, you know, like party all weekend and then sleep in till one, two o'clock in the afternoon, you know, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, and do nothing. So your choices are these, you either get a job full time, or you work part-time and go to school part-time, or you go to school full-time. Those are your choices. If you don't like them, then you can figure out something else, but you're not going to live here. So it was one of those moments, you know, Doc, where you just go, dang, like <laughs> she's not giving me these choices. Like none of them sounded good to me. You know, <laughs> I wanted to be the partier for the rest of my life. And, but, um, you know, I made that decision and what I did, you know, like the following days, I went out to a recruiter and I ended up joining the Navy and, um, so I had one big last shebang. Uh, two weeks before I went into boot camp, I went to Hawaii for two weeks, right, as a graduation present. That was like the only thing I really saved up for because, right, my mom says, you whatever you save, I'll match. And and I got to go to Hawaii for two weeks and, and you know, go with a couple of friends and stay with my friend's brother who lived on the island at the time. And and, it, and back then, the drinking age was 18. Okay. So it was, it was one big party. Like, and you could... I met people from the mainland there that went to my high school, right? It was just like everybody was there to party. They knew it was 18. Fast forward, I go to the Navy. And um, 
So I do boot camp in San Diego. And then I go to San, uh, San Francisco, Treasure Island. I don't know if you know where Treasure Island is. It's on the other side of the bay. Okay. Um, right. It's on the other side of the Bay Bridge. Um, so in order to get from Treasure Island into San Francisco, you had to take the Bay Bridge. And remember, they had that big air earthquake where the part of that oh, yes, bridge the, collapsed. The one that goes over to Oakland. Yes. Yes. So that was the bridge I would have to take. Right. Um, and to go into town. And, you know, so the farthest I ever went was san francisco and then for me so here's like here's where if you could tell where the struggle starts but to me it's not right i think i'm a big week so i'm 18 years old i'm in san francisco and that week happens to be fleet week right so in the navy fleet week what they do is all the officers stay on board the ships right they pull them in the dock and they give tours right and all the enlisted guys get to go into town so on the pier that year I got to see Stevie Ray Vaughan play a free concert and it was all the beer I could drink. So, you know, you talk about thinking I was on top of the world, right? I'm like 18 Stevie Ray Vaughan. Wow. If this is Navy life, I'm going to stick with this for a while. Right. Right. But little did I know that it was actually leading me down, you know, a darker path and I'll try to fast forward. So I, 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 I never leave California. Right. And so when you go to school, um, they give you this thing called the dream sheet, right? And I knew the only thing I did have insight on or, or knew for me, it was like, if I don't get out of here, it's not going to be good, right? Like I need to pick a port that's like across the world, right? And even then it might've not saved me, but that's what I was thinking in my head, you know? And so they give us this thing called the dream sheet and they say, you know, we can't promise you'll get this, but fill out where you'd like to go from your most, you know, the, your top three, I think it was. So I put Spain. They had a base in Spain. So I put that. Uh, I put the next one was Portugal. And then the third, the closest to mainland America was Hawaii. So I put that as my third. Right. So I finished. Three attractive options there. Yeah. Right. So, you know, I I actually excel in school there. I taught, I graduated in the top 5% of the school I went to, the A school where I went. And um, I get my orders on the day of graduation. And lo and behold, I get. Long Beach, California. And that's literally, Doc, 20 minutes from my house where I was living. No kidding. <laughs> yeah. So I called my mom and I said, don't pack up my room. And she said, why? And I said, because I got stationed in Long Beach. And she just went like, because I don't know if you remember. Remember those commercials back in the day where the Navy, it's on the, on the ocean. You see the whole fleet and it says, it's not just a job, but it's an adventure. Of course. Yeah, so my mom goes, what happened to the adventure? <laughs> so I go, I don't know, mom. It's going to be out of Long Beach, right? And and lo and behold, I come home, right? And I'm, I fall back, as they say, right back into the frying pan. Because all my friends, right? I'm not really that far out of high school. Everybody's still, they're either in college partying or a lot of them are doing the same thing we were doing when we were in school. And and it wasn't good, at, at least for me and you see the power of the environment right there, how much environment can play a role when it comes to addictions and certain habits. Absolutely, right? Because, uh, you know, the saying you hear, if you go to the barbershop long enough, you're going to get a haircut, right? And I tell I tried. everybody that same quote. <laughs> <laughs> I just right? told somebody that same quote the other day. Right? Or if you hang around the dogs, you're going to get fleas, right? And it's so true. Like, I did try, Doc. Let me tell you, I tried to be the good sailor, to be the good son, and but, you know, when I'm living at home and everybody finds out I'm home, right? And they're like, what? Yeah, same thing. What happened to your adventure, right? Like, I thought this more than just a job, but it was an adventure. Um, 
you know, I ended up getting in trouble and it was right back to what I was doing, you know, and I actually got in trouble when I was in the service for pause. Because uh, in 1986, it was the first year they started with the zero uh, zero tolerance policy, right? No drugs whatsoever. Um, and you would have, if you went home, you'd come off, you know, leave or or whatever. I lived at home, right? Until they actually told us we had to stay on the ship whether for drills or whatever, but I got to go home. But you would walk across the bow, right? And they'd have two MPs with two dogs, drug sniffing dogs, right? And I didn't get busted for possession, but I got busted for being uh, pop positive for cocaine. And I ended up getting uh, 45 days extra duty, 45 days restriction, right? And telling my mom, yeah, I have these big drills we got to do. And later my mom goes, you really thought I, I believed you about doing these big drills, right? But- so, you know, that was like the beginning of not the end, but going further down that rabbit hole, if you know what I mean. So I would end up meeting my, who is now my ex-wife, right? And, and the good thing is that when my son, when we found out my son was coming, right, when he was, uh, before he was born, I quit. I even quit smoking. Like I had a brand new pack of marbles on me. I remember the day she said she was pregnant, I threw it in the trash and I quit doing everything, right? Except drinking, of course. But I even mellowed out on that for a while. But it was only temporary, right? And what would happen is, what would happen, our relationship would start to sour, right? After eight years of marriage, we would go through a divorce. And it was like, to me at that time, I was one of those believe if you get married, you stay married, right? Like, that's... Even though my mom wasn't an example of that, but my uncles and aunts, there's a lot of uncles and aunts that have been married and are still married today, right? Until one or the other passed away. Um, so it was like, it crushed me, right? Because we had three children at the time. Mm -hmm. um, the only thing holding me together was having those kids on the weekend. And um, and then one what day, what, one day, what happened was I was, I came home from work. I was living with my mom and there was a, a message on the machine, right? Hey, this is so-and-so call me at this number. And it was a two zero two. And I'm like, you know, when that pit in your gut just sinks, cause you know that that's not a California zip code. Like, mm -hmm. and I remember, you know, calling her and she goes, yeah, I took the kids and I left and I'm in Nebraska and I'm not coming back. And it was that moment. I, you know what I mean? Like, even, I, I know this is not funny, but it was like that moment, right? You know, that commercial said, then he knew he was in big trouble. It was like, I knew at that moment, like things were not going to be, and, and it crushed me, right? Because at the time, my middle child, my middle daughter was getting ready to turn five. So I was going to miss her birthday. Um, like I said, the kids were the only thing holding me on the weekends, right? Yeah, I would party. But if I had the kids on the weekend, I would tell my friends, don't come by. It's me and my kids don't want to see you guys like and, and and my friends for for the most part would respect that but when that happened it crushed me as i, I you know and that was the yeah it, is you that the bottom moment for you that's one of them that was one of them okay. so here's what happened here's what led to me going down that hole and i kept digging right so that happened and at, about at that time my brother who i told you about who committed suicide mm -hmm. Um, had just got out of prison doing his first term, right? 
so what happened is, is I, um, I built a room in the garage because my mom had this huge garage. Like you could literally park four cars in there, right? And there was so, so I, what I did is I, I took half of it, made a room so I could technically tell people I didn't live in the same house, right? Because it was in the in the garage. That's how I was rationalizing to myself, right? That I was okay, that I wasn't living with mom because I built this room in here. And, and but anyway, long story short, as I was cleaning out that garage in that process of building that, I found a needle, and I found a spoon. And I knew right then at that moment, because I was then I was I, I was drinking heavily mm-hmm. and I was just, you know, doing cocaine here and there. I wasn't really getting back into the hard drugs, but I had tried meth a couple of times. And that's when I knew what he was doing, because then it all clicked. Like when I would see him sometimes when he would act a certain way, I was like, oh, I know what he's doing. Right. Yeah. Um. So what I did right after I was all done completing that room, had it all laid out, I had a little couch with a coffee table and i set up i went and bought a quarter ounce of methamphetamine i put it there like i was going to take a picture and sell it right so i was put it on the the coffee table with the spoon and the and the needle and i knew my brother was coming over that night so he came over and um i invited him into the room and then i locked the door and i stood between him and the you know and he knew he looked down and he was like like you just saw the look in his face, like this is not going to go well. Right. Right. And um, so I told him, I said, well, you're either, you know, you're going to show me how to do that. I go and I told him what happened and he was like sincerely bummed for me, but he was like, no, I'm not showing you how to do that. And I said, yeah, you are. And we went back and forth doc for like two hours. And I said, he was trying to protect you. He didn't want you to get involved. Absolutely. Right. In his own way, he was being the protective little brother. Right. But then I gave him no choice. I said, there's two ways you leave this room. You show me how to do that or you have to you're going to have to beat me up. And he knew the second wasn't going to happen. Right. So he ended up showing me how to do it. I ended up like I could. That was the first time I ever used drugs intravenously. And it was like I was hooked. That's was the beginning of many bottoms, right? Like severe bottoms. When I knew like this was, I liked it so much. I was like, told him to hang out. My brother ended up leaving. He ended up getting arrested that night and uh, we didn't hear for for a few days and then he called collect. He ended up getting in trouble. But that was the path that I had chosen for a long time. So what happens is I started, when the drinking didn't work, I mean, I kept drinking, right? And then I was introduced to methamphetamine and that was it. That was the one that was going to numb me out enough that I didn't have to feel the pain uh, of missing my kids and and you know what I mean? Going through the divorce. Um, And then I'll fast forward. So if I could interject, what what do you feel like before you had children? Um, what do you think you were trying to numb out before, you know, before the days of having children, you know, in the early days, like in your teen years of, of using and, drinking like what do you think that you were trying to numb out back in the early days oh so let me tell you about that i'm glad you asked me that. It's a great question right so back in my early days right so my mom and dad were divorced for a long time right i think i was in kindergarten when they divorced okay and my dad's job my dad was a very smart man but his job took him overseas like he worked on the oil plants like in iran and iraq before all this craziness happened right he was an electrical engineer so he would set up all the panels and make sure that they ran well so we never saw him i never saw him never saw him and then i was 10 years old the last time i saw him 
And I remember it was like before I turned 11. So it was around October, November. We were hanging out with my dad. My dad would take us on the weekends with his new wife, who was with him at the time. And then my birthday's in March, right? So January, the new year comes. It's like February, and he has to go back to the Philippines. Excuse me. And um, he tells me, he goes, I promise I'll be back for your birthday. And I'm like, okay. So March rolls around, no dad, right? Mm -hmm. April rolls around. Uh, my aunt tells me, my cousin tells me that my dad passed away of a massive heart attack. It's not oh, coming back. So to answer your question, I was angry. I was numbing out the pain of my dad. Like to me as an 11 year old kid, I was like, how dare you break your promise, right? Not realizing like he can't help that he just died of, but I was angry. I got to tell you, I was, and that's, I was, that's not an uncommon sentiment. I mean, when someone leaves yeah. us, we, we feel angry with them for life, especially when we're young and I mean, you're 11 years old and you know, one of the most important people in your life is all of a sudden gone unexpectedly. I mean, that's, that's a lot for an 11 year old brain to, you know, wrap yeah. mind around. And, and, you know, I grew up with that anger and, you know, I told myself that I would never do that if I ever had kids, but actually I think I became worse than my dad. Right. Cause I didn't have a job that really took me away. So fast forward to the divorce, right. She takes the kids to, um, and, and I didn't know this, right. That I was until I did that inner deep work, right. Therapy, the 12 steps for me, the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous and really digging on like digging into myself and going, okay, why, like you said, why did I, why was I so angry growing up? Why did I drink or why did I want to numb and not want to feel sadness, anger, anything, right? I just didn't want to feel anything. And sure. um, so I realized in doing that work that first, right, I was, I was angry and upset at my dad. And then second, I realized that I was angry and upset at myself because that ex-wife of mine, after she had left nine months later, came back to California, right? for whatever reason. And I got a call and she said, Hey, the kids would really like to see you. I'm back in Orange County. I'm over here. Come. And, and they lived in the same city I did. So, you know, and I was, I was probably very getting to the point where I was at the height of my addiction, right? I was drinking every day. I was probably using every day. So I borrowed a friend's car and I said, Hey, can I borrow your car? I want to go see my kids. I don't want to miss this. And I literally parked it the night before I parked in front of their house. And here's what happened, Doc. So the next morning, it was summer, right? I'm, I've got the seed back. And I just, I'll never forget this, right? I remember hearing a knock at the window. And I put the seed up. And you can imagine I've been sleeping. It's hot. I had the windows rolled up. And I'm sweating. And it's my ex-wife and my three kids looking at me from outside. And she's just shaking her head. Like, it was a combination of like, she couldn't believe what she was seeing and she was sad at what she was looking at. Like what wow. happened? You know what I mean? Like, and some disgust, like, wow, you have changed. Right. So she was, she ended up getting married with this guy. Right. And she told her husband at the time, he's going to stay here the night. I don't care what you say, but he's going to spend time with the kids. That would be the last time I would see my kids for nine years. No kidding. 
right so here's here's another huge reason and i believe this and not only as a substance abuse counselor but you know as a recovering alcoholic and added myself guilt and shame are probably the two biggest feelings or emotions whatever you want to call them that keep an addict or an alcoholic drinking or drugging right because that look on their face right that night yes i spent the night with them and then i went on my merry way and i I felt so guilty and ashamed of how far I have gotten into my drug and alcohol use that I swore I I didn't want them to ever see me like that again. And I literally lived, I could be in the same house um, or in the house next door to them, Doc, and I'd either wait till it was nighttime and they were going to bed or it was the next day and they had gone to school so I could, right? And I had avoided them at all costs. And that's one of, you know, I don't, I don't say I have to see me like this. Yeah. And, and, you know, they say we don't have regrets, but that was probably the biggest regret that one, right, that I let it get that bad Two, that I didn't have the courage or the strength or any, I didn't have anybody that I could look for to help if I look back on it. Not, I'm not blaming anybody, but I always grew up with that feeling of like when my dad, right, divorced my mom and then, you know, him passing away, it was like, I don't need anybody's help. My mom didn't know what to do. You know, she was watching me decline really quick. I mean, she matter of fact, kicked me out of the house a few times and, um, you know, I've been arrested. Right. So my addiction's taking off. I'm not seeing my kids. Now I'm starting to get in trouble with the law first, you know, minor offenses, you know, traffic. And then it turns into like paraphernalia. And then I finally get a felony and, it's just it's getting worse so i went from the white picket fence married with children to the streets in about a year's time and the drugs and alcohol took me to places i swore i would never go you know and especially like uh using uh, needles or or whatever but that was the only way doc that i knew how to numb that pain because every time i woke up it was always right there Right. It was right back to where and, and then I would have to go get my hustle on. Right. And that's that's the problem with the addictions. I mean, they're really just a form of avoidance. And the the biggest problem with avoidance and is that, uh, you know, you don't get far enough away. I mean, it's it's a temporary it's a temporary reinforcement because, you know, it, it's negative reinforcement because you're temporarily getting away from, you know, the negative circumstances. So it's a negative re- reinforcement. But uh you know, any problem with avoidance is you just, the problem's always there when you come back to being sober or when you wake up again and whatever it is that you've been trying to avoid or whatever it is that you've been anxious about, you know, that typically that anxiety that you have or that fear or whatever it is, it's, it becomes even more firmly entrenched the more you avoid. Absolutely. Right. And you said that perfectly, right? Because the more I did that, the more I would wake up and it would be right back, right back, but even stronger, like you would say, like it would just, Cause the more I try to push it down, the more it would try to come back up and it would be even more intense. Um, but like I say, you know, I believed in divine intervention. Right. And I remember the, you know, I went like, I was looking at three years in prison when this all finally came to a head. Right. And, um, and I'm trying to share without missing anything, but you know, I'm getting in trouble with the law. My mom is definitely not happy with me and she's kicked me out of, you know, I'm homeless. I'm running the streets of Orange County. Um, you know, it, put it this way. It got so back, so bad, Doc, that like even when I would shower, right, 
I would make sure that I took as hot a shower as possible. So one, it would fog up the mirror in the bathroom. And two, I would do my shaving or not that I have a lot, but, uh, and my toothbrush, you know, toothpaste, uh, brushing my teeth and all that in the shower. So that by the time I got out, it was fogged and I didn't have to see that reflection looking back at me in the mirror. I did not want to see like what was looking back at me because it's like, you know, even though I was in that deep addiction, there was still part of me that says right now, there's still some awareness going on. Yeah, there's awareness. And I'm just going like, okay, if I sit here and stare long enough, this might not end up well, right? Because I did. I've had thoughts, right, in my active addiction of just ending it. And I shared with you, my brother found that it was his way out. Um, I've, you know, as I've worked in the field of addiction for the last 15 years, I cannot tell you how many people that have um, gone back out using, right, or drinking. And then that was their solution because the guilt and the shame kicks back in and that's all you know that's kind of only thinking that you got going is like here i go again and i did i relapsed four times like while i was in a facility so i'll get to that um so my drinking and using is getting worse like i said i'm I'm starting to i get my first felony i'm seeing this job well he was a commissioner at the time but i'm seeing the same judge um right and I'm not doing anything he says, right? And they give me the basic, like uh, what they used to call PC-1000. That means you go to a certain amount of meetings, right? And you stay clean, right? You test positive for probation and then we'll squash it and then we'll we'll take it off your record. I couldn't even do that, right? So then they put me on this thing called Prop 36, which is a lot like what drug court is now. You've heard of drug court, correct? Kind of, sort of, yeah. Right, so you you check in with the judge every so often, right? They test you. They make sure you're going to meetings and doing what you're supposed to. And if you test positive, they throw you back in jail for two or three days. And then, right. It could be anywhere from a year to 18 months, sometimes longer, right. Depending on your progress and how you do. Well, I just, I got out of jail and I went on the run. Right. I'm like, I'm not doing that. I'm too important for that. Right. Like I got other things to do. So when I got arrested the last time, right, I was in my mother's car And everything I owned was in the trunk of her car. And I was in this town called Hawaiian Gardens. And I was picking up a friend for another friend. And this guy happened to be a a known gang member, right? Yeah, so I pull out of his street. And I'm I'm going towards, you know, down the main street um, towards my friend's house. And all of a sudden, I get lit up by the L.A. County Sheriff Gang Task Force. Oh, no. Right? Because they saw us come out from his house. Long story short, right? They stop us. And I had been up for probably a few days. So I'm tired. And um, as the sheriff was walking up and I said, hey, deputy, I said, you need to just take me in. I'm tired. I got a warrant. If you could see on the rear view, right? Like he's looking like, what did this guy just say? Right. So they asked my friend to get out of the car. The one sheriff's talking to him. He goes, what did you say? And I said, yeah, you heard me, right? I go, I have a warrant. I'm tired. Take me in. And I didn't have a license or insurance. That was my mom's car. He said, since you were so honest with me, I'll let your mom come get it. And I was like, thank you. Because if not, you might as well just send me straight to prison because that lady's going to come here and kill me. And, you know, I try to make a joke out of a, a bad situation, but they let her come get the car. And that would begin my process towards recovery. Right. So I did five days in L.A. County. And back then, if if the 
the what do you call it um the like if orange county didn't come get me after five days they would have to let me go right right but orange county as good as they are here in california on that fifth day they came and got me and said nope we're taking you back to orange county and um you know i'd start that six month violation well back then if you had a six month violation you would do four months with good time work time so this was this was the point that actually spearheaded your recovery. This is the part where um in my head it was like I didn't know what I was going to do but I knew I needed to do something different. I was done. Right? Like wanting to use and drink anymore at that point wasn't an option, right? But you know as we get well like and you've worked with people, right? They get a little bit better and they're like, "Oh, I'm good. I can do this again." Right? So anyway, I'm sitting in Orange County jail. Um, and here's, here's where I believe it was pivotal for me. That moment when you just gave the right answer, but you didn't know it was the right answer. So I was two weeks in, my mom comes to visit and we're sitting across the glass. She picks up the phone. I pick up the phone. And before I could speak anything, she says, she says, I love you, son, but you're no longer welcome at my home. If you come near my home, I will call the police. And if my neighbors see you and I'm not home, they're going to call the police. So what are you going to do? Right. And that was at that moment I went, I don't know. And I literally said, I don't, I go, I don't know, mom. And she starts crying. I'm like, what are you crying for? You get to go home. I go, I got to go back to this cell. And she reminds, she goes, that's the best answer you have ever given me. And this whole doing this stuff with you and you know because i gave those empty promises many times where she's picked me up from jail i promise i'll find the kids so you can be your you know a grandma i'll get a job i promise i'll go back to all those empty promises that um i gave her over the years right in my active addiction and and it was that moment i realized i go like i don't know what i'm going to do but it's got to be different than this right um and I don't know if this is truth. That's when we uh that's when the good stuff starts to happen. We're truthful with ourselves, we're truthful with others. And you know, sometimes it's we're the most wisest when we know what we don't know. Exactly. Exactly. Wisest. That's horrible English. We are the wisest. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> right. So here's one of those... work for me. <laughs> right. Um, I don't know if this is G-rated or anything, but I'm gonna give you another example where it really clicked for me that I gotta make change. So I was sitting in oh, that this jail is not cell. G-rated. <laughs> okay, good. So I was sitting in that jail cell with my bunkie, right? I was I was on the top, he was on the bottom, and and we were talking and and I happened to be in one of those moments, right? It was a poor, poor me day, right? Like I love my kids. And here's how bad it got, Doc. So there was this picture of my kids that an ex-girlfriend had the kids taken, right? With Santa Claus. So it was my son and my two daughters when they were little. And I took that thing on the streets with me, right? And there was this lady that used to, she'd always say, I'll babysit your kids, right? You get out, it'll, it'll be here. And it was always at her house. So I was telling this guy how much I love my kids, Right. You know, and I was just totally into the pity pot, man. And it got silent for a second. And then I heard him go, hey, homie, if you love your kids so much, what the fuck are you doing here? And it always brings tears, almost makes me cry because he was like a part of me, like, oh, you just just like we did. We got up and he was ready to go. I was like, I'm ready to go because, you know, in jail, you don't get disrespected without standing your ground. Right. Right. And we were like, 
face to face. And I sat there for a minute and it clicked. I said, he's absolutely right. And I said, hey, I go, dude, you're absolutely right. I got to change. He goes, and he gave me a hug and he says, don't ever come back. Right. And so it's through this whole aha moment right there. Yeah, that was a very aha moment because it was it could have gone south real quick. Him and I fighting and then whatever, getting in trouble. Right. But I think I paused trigger for more stuff. And absolutely. Right. Because he was well, he was a South Sider. Right. And I was I ran with another crowd, the whites, even though I don't look white, but that's who I ran with. Right. And the whole prison jail mentality, you know, the politics. Right. You run with. But I considered that guy a friend at that moment. I go, because he shot me the truth and he didn't care if it hurt my feelings. And I was like, man, I needed that, right? And so I did my time, right? But in during this process, they were trying to find a place for me to go, right? And the judge, like I said, who I've been seeing all these times I was getting in trouble, he's like, you've never done anything I've asked. So he goes, you're not leaving my jail until I want two things happen. I find you a place program to go to. Or two, you're getting on a bus and you're going to state prison. Those are your only two choices. I will keep you here as long as I have to, but you're not running my streets because you don't listen and you don't do anything I ask. Well, they finally found me this place and it wasn't probation approved, but the guy, the judge let me go anyway, sentenced me there for a year, right? And um, I didn't stay sober. I relapsed four times while I was in that place. But the last one had the biggest effect on me, right? And it was, and it wasn't because I got high. It was like the the all it was like my life flashed before my eyes, right? And then here's where I believe this is where my faith was strengthened in divine in a power greater than me, right? Mm-hmm. So I was sitting in that room. I got high in the facility. The house manager is like Max in the office now. He knew just by looking at me, right? And I'm like, so I'm getting ready. I just came out of the bathroom. I hear a knock at the door. Knock, knock, knock. And I open the door and it's the director of the facility. This is a Sunday, right? So she's never even comes on a weekend, let alone a Sunday. Right. And I open the door. I step out and she says, how you doing, Max? And I said, I'm doing. And I said, I can't lie to you. I go, I did it again. And I remember this lady, her name was Sue. She gave me the biggest bear hug. She said, pack a bag. I'll handle Steve. Get in your car, leave for three days, come back and start over. And I got back on the 27th of September, 2003, and I have not looked back and have been clean and sober ever since, right? Because of all people, she shows up at my door. I was like, somebody's watching out for me. So I need to make the best of this, right? You're going on 20 years now. Yeah. So September, I'll have 20 years, but you know, the... For me, the challenges, right, that was definitely a challenge, right? Like I said, I did things in my addiction that I swore I'd never do. I remember being in a motel room with five other guys, right? And they're all straight out of prison, tatted from the neck down, like like you would see in a movie, right? And I'm, it was just at the beginning of my addiction, right? So I still look pretty clean cut, right? I had a nice haircut. I didn't have any tattoos. And my friend leaves me there with these guys. And I'm like, oh. but I was, I was starting to use the needle, right? Gotcha. And I remember the guy looked at me and they all looked at me like, this guy's a narc. Like he doesn't, he's not one of us, right? We're not trusting you for a second. Not at all. 
And that thing I said I would never do, you know what I mean? Like with, and I, there I am in a motel room, the guy hands me a needle. And before I, I didn't even, I just did it. And I did it so quick, man. These guys all looked at me like, no, he can't be a narc. That was too fast. Mm. Right. But see, I was at that point. I didn't care if it was going to kill me or not. Right. I was going to do it. Nothing to lose. I have nothing to lose. Right. And if, if it was good, I was going to get high. I'd have to, you know, I'd be able to forget my worries at the moment. I ended up becoming friends with those guys. And, and it's funny, Doc, because like there's a code amongst these convicts, right? Like, which I, I'm a, I'm a felon, but I remember two dudes, they were big. And, and it was right before I got sober, right? Before I got in trouble the last time. And they had cornered me in this house, in this room. It was, it was a, like, a, they were, my friend was remodeling it, but he was also a partier. So he's letting everybody in there. And I become friends with these two guys. And in the course of my addiction, right, I'd always, like, I wanted to prove myself. So I'd always tell these guys, hey, man, you guys go do something. I want to go with you, right? I want to help. And they say, okay, right? They they placate me and go, okay, dog. Like, hey, okay, homie, we'll, we'll let you know, right? And then I didn't realize this, but later, but every time they would get ready to do something, they'd say, here's some money, Max. We're hungry. Go get us some food, right? So I'd go get the food. I come back, they're gone. They're gone. Oh my gosh. They were protecting me, right? And then, like I said, they cornered me in this room one day and they're big dudes and tat, like I said, tatted. And they just both stared at me and they cornered me and they were like, you're a good dude, right? Like you don't belong here. Right. Go back to your family. Come back to where you came from. We know you got our back, but you know, they, but they said, if you go to prison and we see you, if you go to the prison we're at, we're going to kick the shit out of you for shits and giggles. Now go get right. And I'll never forget that. And it was like, you That's know how you love this love I've ever heard. <laughs> <laughs> right. And, and I'm telling you, I looked at him like, yeah, right. Whatever. Right. And I had a couple few more days. I was like, actually about another month before I would get in trouble again. And I remember when I was sitting in that cell, when I, that guy was talking to me, right? Like I would have moments where I remember these guys telling me that I go, if I go to prison, these guys are going to kick the shit out of me, man. I can't go to prison. Right. And then I would do those famous prayers like, okay, God, get me out of this. I promise I won't do this again. Cause I'd rather have you protect me than get the shit kicked out of me and stay prison. Right. And um, so I went through the process. I went through this, you know, I got sentenced to a, a treatment slash sober living for a year. And as I said, I didn't stay sober, but here's where the challenges really came at me, uh, Doc, and and that's in my recovery, right? And I shared with you, so yeah, I'm going to share. Let's talk more about that. Let's so so we, we fast forward to recovery. Uh, yeah, talk talk to me about the hurdles and talk to me about the tools that you picked up there, because I mean, you know, the addictions. I always conceptualize it as it's a behavior, and it's a behavior we spend a fuck ton of time doing. Right. So <laughs> I spent a lot of time of, doing it. Think of it as a as a behavioral repertoire. So if we're gonna if we're gonna take something out of that behavioral repertoire, we're doing it for X number of hours in a day. Yeah, you know, anybody can stop doing something. But to stay stopped, you have to always replace it with something else. And I I always used to get the funny look when I asked people, like, well, what's the good thing that you get out of, you know. You know, because everyone always talks about the evils of, of things. And I always ask people, what's what are you? What's the good thing you're getting out? And they, they can be funny, like, why would you ask me that? Because you've got to figure out what's positively reinforcing about it for you because so you can find something else to replace it with that's going to serve that same purpose. Right. So, you know, 
to to whether it's to address the anger like you mentioned in your case or 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 depression or sadness or self-loathing or whatever it might be but right. what is it that's going to help me to do that so what, what right. was it that what, what was it that helped you to fill the void so it helped me when i finally got serious about working my program right doing the 12 steps um honestly and thoroughly right because i believe and i know i'm, I'm not pushing 12 steps on anybody but for me it was something that i needed and the way my sponsor took me through the steps right helped me realize that they were tools for me to live with unresolved issues right because i'm not going to resolve every issue in my life that i've ever had right because i just don't have that much time but they were the tools that helped me live with unresolved issues right and to help me with that anger mm -hmm. um that depression that anxiety um and so some of the tools I got out of that, right, was, as you know, step 12, the first, the being of service, right? Getting outside of myself and helping somebody else, right? Mm -hmm. And and being there for people that were going, who are going through the things that I had gone through. And, right, so after that last relapse, my sponsor says, and one of the most, and I've had the same sponsor, Doc, for going on 20 years. Never changed the sponsor. Um he never abandoned me or left my side. Right. He was always there when I got back with open arms, hugged me. Um, right. So, because like, for instance, when I did the steps the first time, right. When I first got to the facility, I just rushed through them, especially my four step. And I know, you know, about the four step, that inventory, right. Where we do that moral inventory of ourselves and, and get all these secrets out. Well, I did it the first time and it was maybe three quarters of a page long. Okay. Right. So like when I handed that to my sponsor and he looked at me, it was that look like, dude, you've been in an active addiction for nine years. You just got out of jail and you're telling me this is your four step look, you know what I mean? Without having to say anything. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, that's when I ended up relapsing. Right. Cause I'm, you hear the saying, I, I was only as sick as my secrets and I was still holding a lot of secrets in. And I can tell you that man knows everything about me, good, bad, or indifferent. Right. He's seen me at my lowest. He's seen me at my highest. Um, so like in my recovery, what I learned was, right. That was my first introduction into personal development. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Right. 100%. So when, when I was right, cause here's what my sponsor said to me after my last relapse, he goes, Max, there's only one thing you got to change. And I'm like thinking, cool. What's I go, what's that? He goes, everything. <laughs> I'm like, Right. But I, here's the thing about my sponsor. He's such a gentleman and he's he's never, ever raised his voice at me. He's never told me to do anything. He's always encouraged me or suggested, right? I call him my Yoda, right? Because I always say, his name's Daryl. I said, Daryl, I'm going to walk into your office one day. You're going to be like floating in the middle of the room with like that green aura like Yoda. And you're going to be telling <laughs> me to use the force, right? And, and he's so just, as, right? And he is. And you know, and it was like when I went through those relapses, it was almost my way of like saying, okay, this guy's too good to be true, right? He was like a father figure, brother, mentor, right? And in my life, right, I really didn't have any. So I was going to see, like, those were my ways, if I look back at it, how far I could push this guy to see if he was really going to be stick with me, right? Test and people. And then, but in the end, yeah. you saw that you, in the end, you got that consistency. I mean, this is a gentleman that's been in your life for 20 years. I mean... If that you finally got that consistency that was lacking in your life for all those years. 
Absolutely. Right. And I had that, the, you know, I was abandonment issues, right? My dad, right? So it was my way to push this guy to see, oh, let's see if he really walks the walk and talks the talk, right? And he did, right? And that guy has taught me a lot, right? I did finally did a four step that I got everything that I could think of and could remember out, got all my secrets out. And like I said, here I am almost 20 years later, right? And then he suggested a couple other things as I went along, I started at, so at about year five, I went through a severe depression, like never experienced anything like it. You know, what, I'm five, what that for you. I don't know. You know, I, I, to this day, I don't know. Right. But all I can remember is at that time, right. I had a girlfriend. We had our own place. I was seeing my kids, like everything was perfect. I had a good job, right. I was paying my back child support and current child support. Uh, I was having my kids anytime I wanted, you know, usually every other weekend uh, or sometimes every weekend, it depended on what I wanted to do, if they wanted to come over or not. And I just, I, I can't tell you what it was. I mean, you've probably experienced, I don't, I don't know if you ever have, but it was like, I felt worse than that cloud of doom hanging over my head. It's just like, I could barely get to work. I remember I would come home. I barely say hi and I would go in the room, blacking it out and then curl up in a fetal position and just wonder like why. And then I wanted to die. Like I couldn't explain why I felt so bad. You couldn't put your finger on the self-talk that you're having at the time. No. And I couldn't. So I told my sponsor, I finally got the nerve to tell him how I was doing. And he's like, are you all right? And I go, no, dude, I go, I've been going home every day and just curling up in a fetal position. I go, I really want to blow my head off. I go, I'm so depressed. I can't. And he goes, he breaks out the big book, right? Right to this page where it says, even us alcoholics have to seek outside help at times, right? Because us alcoholics, not all of us are doctors or psychiatrists, right? And he suggests, so I went to my doctor and I was telling my doctor what I was going through. He he referred me to a psychiatrist uh, and then they put me on, um, well, butrin. And lo and behold, I started to feel better, right? Yeah. But what the psychiatrist told me she goes, when she saw my history and, you know, I told her I was an intravenous drug user for so many years and I did meth. And then I told her, you know, how much I would do and how much I drank. And she goes, well, it was just your brain's way of saying I caught up to you now. Now I'm going to let you suffer for a little bit. Right. In a funny way. But she says your brain, it just, it was, you know, the, that hedonic set point they talk about. Right. She said, I had set it so high from all the meth use that it, it was like, I couldn't feel any joy or, Right. And that it would have to come down slowly. Right. And um big change yeah, threshold there. Absolutely. Right. And and it changed. And I was on meds for a good 10 years and it stopped working. Right. And then I remember just like my wife going, She goes, You're 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 here, but I don't see you happy. I don't see you sad. I just you're like there. Yeah. Exactly. Right. And that's she explained it when she said that. I go, Yeah, you're right. That's how I feel. Cause like there'd be family over and I'd be on my chair just kind of like checking out. Right. Yeah. So I told her I want to get off my meds. So I went to my doctor and this was three years ago. Now, almost over three years ago, I said, Hey, I want to come off my medicine. I think it's time. It's not working anymore. I don't want to get on any new medication. So I, I tried traded the way he said, I've been off it three years and feel better than I ever have. Right. But that's because then I include exercise and eating right. And, and doing healthy things right not just sitting yeah. in my butt going okay i'm off now i should feel better right 
uh, because we had that talk, my doctor and I, my wife and I said, well, you know, it's about for me eating right and, and exercise because I've Ooh. always been involved in sports and stuff. So, right. So the challenge is like, if you want to understand, like for me, six years, six years ago, doc, here's what happened. I turned 13 years sober. Three days later, my sister would pass away. Oh my goodness. Right. And I was with my ex fiance at the time. So Eight months later, when I'm in Denver, so her and I were moving to Minnesota. We were in Denver, Colorado at the time. I was at a Denny's. I get the call from my oldest brother saying, hey, our brother's gone. Right. And I'm like, what? I'm like, okay, what does he do? Did he go on a motorcycle ride or he took off for a weekend? Like, that's what he always does, right? Like, he, my brother was a spontaneous type. Like, he would take his family on camping trips, like, during the week, right? Let's go camping or let's go riding or... And... And then when he, he, I'll never forget, this is the first time I've ever heard him cry. He said, no, our brother hung himself. He's gone. Wow. And like, you know, I mean, you don't like right now it still hurts. Right. And I remember I just, I broke down crying right there in the middle of Denny's because my brother and I were only two years apart. Very close. Very close. Right. And it was him and my mother and I for a long time. Right. Because my older siblings, my five older siblings were all like I said, the closest one to me was 10 years older. Right. So they were all out doing their own thing, you know, making their own families. And that's why I said I never had a really a father figure. I My brothers tried a couple of times to my older brother tried, but right, doing his own thing. And and I remember sitting there just like I, I couldn't wrap my head around it. Right. Because I was thinking about my mom. She had just lost a daughter. Now it's a son. Like two kids with a nightmare to lose one child, much less two. Right. I don't care how old you are as a parent, right? We're not supposed to, they're not, not supposed, supposed to, to die. Before. Yeah, exactly. Um, And I just remember, right. I, we, I had to drive in. Here's where I, uh, there's my sponsor, right? So he's the first person I call and I tell him what happens. And he first time, this is the first time I, he ever said, he goes, I don't know what to tell you. He goes, but I'm here for you. Right. Like he, I, I don't have any, all I can do is be here for you. And I said, all right. I really couldn't speak anyway, but that gentleman stayed on the phone with me for two hours, two hours while I drove on the way to Minnesota. Right. And he kept reminding me, I'm here. You need to talk. I'm like my fiance at the time. Sometimes she that's didn't all we know. can do. I mean, there's no perfect thing we can say. Exactly. And then my fiance at the time, you know, my ex, she didn't, she was like in tears because she didn't know what to do. Like she didn't know how to console me and, you know, and I, I finally get to to Minnesota, like I think it was a day and a half later. And I go to a, an AA meeting and I share with a bunch of dudes. I don't even know, right, what happened. And here's the power of AA, right? They all surrounded me. They all gave me hugs and they said, you're in the right place. And I was, right? And I just, I sat there with them for a minute. And then the next day I was back home. I was on a plane from Minnesota back to Orange County so I could be with my family because they asked me to do his eulogy and so I came back to California for a couple of weeks and, but I remember that. So I got home at night that next day I had that, that dread, you know, and I said, well, I got to go to my sister's and I got to see my mom. Like, you know what I mean? You don't want to ever see a parent. And I just remember walking in the door, she started crying and she just kept asking me why, why? Cause she thought it was an overdose. We, to this day, even to the day she died, we didn't tell her cause we were afraid if we had told her he committed suicide, she might've gone quicker. Mm -hmm. But here's what happened, right? Like six days, 
or six days, excuse me, six months to the day my mom would die six months later. Oh my goodness. On on Thanksgiving Day, right? And you, my daughter you and your brother and your mother and my sister apart, and your sister yeah. all within a year, just over a year's time. And then that following Monday, I would put my daughter in treatment, my baby girl, for the first time. Talk about and, a test for you. Yeah. And um, and I just, re- I, you know, and but here by one thing I got to say, yeah, I struggled. Not in the sense that I wanted to go use and stuff, right? But th- I did have those. Okay, God, like, I, I get it. You put us through trials and tribulations, but this is a little, you know. But you got all that with no relapse. With no, oh, and it gets even better, right? So, but here's the thing. My brother and I, our favorite poem is that Footprints poem. And guess what I read at his eulogy was that Footprints, right? So there was times I had questions, but then I understood. I go, okay, God, I know you're carrying me because I can't do this by myself, right? I got to be here for my children. I got to be here for my siblings. But the cool part is that six months, I got to spend every Monday night with my mom. And here's the cool thing, Doc. So- I had turned 14 years sober, but I was sitting there with my mom one night on a Monday night, and it was two weeks before she passed away. She's rubbing my leg, right? And I'm like, what's up, mom? Like, you know, when you just know there's something going on, I look at my mom and she's, she's watching, we're watching TV together and she looks at me and she goes, I just want to thank you for your 13 years of sobriety. Wow. You know, and I just went and um, I'll never forget it. I wanted to correct her and go, it was 14. Yeah, you know what I mean? But I didn't. I didn't correct her. I was like, oh, God. And she goes, I have to thank you. She goes, because God answered my prayers. Thank you. And I sat there and, you know, tried to not let her see me cry. And um, and two weeks, little did I know that she would go and do it. Like, you know, go to sleep and never wake up. And then she would die on Thanksgiving Day. Um, And then as recently as three years ago, Doc, another challenge, you know, popped up. And so my oldest stepdaughter, right. Um, her daughter was born with skids and mitochondrial disease and we would lose her at three months and a day old. Right. So, um, I was right. Her husband was working like he couldn't be there. So she asked me to go into the emergency room with her. And of course I did. Right. And I had to, um, you know, I was trying to console her and, and I'm watching this little baby girl get put on life support and then eventually life lighted to a hospital, right? Where they could, and she would end up passing away. And then a week after she passed away, I'm on my way back to work. And my oldest son, I get a call from my daughter and my baby girl. And she's hysterical. And at first I'm thinking, what's going on? I could barely understand her. And then she finally gets it out. She goes, you need to go to the hospital. Your son's dying. But what happened, Doc, is my son at 30 years old had a massive stroke. Oh, no. Because of his addiction and his poor choices and, you know, drinking and um, and some other things that happened that the hospital didn't do. But anyway, I ended up going down to Orange County um, and watching him get put on i'm in the room as they're putting him on life support and uh so he'd be on life support for 10 days and i remember when i was watching him you know and even at one point the the doctor said you might as well get a priest i don't think he's gonna make it because he had three minor strokes while he was on life support 
And I was like, you know what I mean? And here's where the, like, this is where like, it was like mum, muscle memory for me. This is where the program kicked in. I looked at the doctors and I said, ah, no, I go, I got thousands of people praying for me now. Right. Because I belong into some recovery communities on Facebook and that are all, uh, you know, recovering from addiction or alcoholism 100%. and the yeah. word, yeah. You know, the word got sent out. People are praying for my son, um, you know, and it's just, he ends up pulling through. Right. And now, you know, three years later, he's alive and he's sober. Oh my gosh. Right. And um, yeah, it's been, it's been a crazy, you know, crazy ride. But when I tell people you don't ever have to drink or use again, even if you want to, I believe it. Right. Because that last, that, well, the last day I used that day at that, that facility, I remember sitting there after she told me to leave. I was sitting in the car and I told God, I said, you keep me sober, God, and I'll do the work to do whatever it takes to stay sober. And clearly and God done the work. I mean, what's, what's so remarkable and just hearing, hearing the story just now and you just so eloquently, you know, uh, portrayed for us, um, depicted for us. is just, you know, going from somebody that you had a hard time helping yourself. And, you know, by the end, when all this tragedy is striking in your whole family, you're the one being the beacon and helping everybody else out. And you can't do that unless your own cup is filled. So you did such a remarkable job of filling your own cup so that you could be there for everybody else and help everybody else. And, you know, it's, it's a tragic time. And yeah. um, I mean, all those losses and everything else, but I mean, just to, I mean, if you could have, you know, probably imagine 20 30 years prior to that and to if you had you probably couldn't have pictured yourself being that position to to be able to help people the way you did absolutely not if you would have asked me 19 years you know 19 years ago hey max uh you're gonna have a house you're gonna be married to your beautiful wife you know you're gonna be a grandpa and you're i would have said whatever you're drinking dockers <laughs> i would have said pass <laughs> it my way i would have been like because that must be really good stuff right and to be honest, there's sometimes I, I just, you know, um, like I said, when I did the 12 step work, that was like the beginning of my personal development. Right. And then it's put me around people like yourself, right. Where we all are like-minded, right. We all try to be better than we were yesterday. Um, and all, we all try to help people in some form or fashion. We, right. Because we know if we help others get what they want. We're going to get what we want. Right. Mm-hmm. But in that process, we try to be kind, we be caring, compassionate, empathetic, right? And you know what you do. I mean, that's a big part of what you do. And so it's led me down this trail of personal development, right? And seeking people outside of recovery, right? And Absolutely. like yourself and, and people, like we read books like you and I know, like David Goggins. Yes, he's extreme, but that guy's, a you know we have to learn to be comfortable being uncomfortable because that's when the growth starts. Right. Exactly. And, and, and it's, it's so funny. I've been telling everybody this because I just read this a couple of weeks ago, but there's even scientific studies that have shown that the only time learning occurs is during periods of uncertainty. Yes. Only time. And I believe that, right. Because in those, those tragedies I went through, you know, and as sad as it is, and I still grieve, you know, I go through the stages of grief. Right. I learn more about myself in those toughest times than I do when I'm the happiest, right? Because it really makes you, as they say, dig deep and and really figure out what you're made of, right? Absolutely. Because, 
and in the process, here's the beauty of it too, is like I said, like meeting people like you and, and becoming friends and like, there's people that truly, there are good people out there. So I don't, that's why I don't watch the news. It's all depressing, right? Oh, I don't that's watch I, I stick close to our network that we both belong to. And I know that, you know, there's really good people out there. And and I just, if there's anything I could tell your audience, right, this is why I do what I do is I want to leave a legacy. And it's not about leaving a ton of money for my kids and right. But leaving that legacy of when they, when they ask, my kids ask, or my grandkids, they're going to go, my grandpa was a good guy. He helped people tirelessly like he always okay if i can give you an example there's on the back of a a literature it says when anyone anywhere cries out for help let the hand of aa be there Mm -hmm. and for that i'm responsible right so that's the legacy i want to leave right not only in my recovery community but for my family right that dad was always you know dad was always you know helping us out or grandpa was always doing this right and just for being a good person, you get what I'm saying? Cause I already had that part where I wasn't a good person, right? Where people, I mean, I mean like, the, the great part about, I mean, you had to go through a ton of trials and tribulations, but the, in the end you find your purpose. Absolutely. And like, I've heard it, I live uh, in purpose on purpose. Right. And I, I and I, I try to do my best every day and yeah, on um, purpose, being intentional every day. Yes. Absolutely. That's, Absolutely. That's, that's where we get our greatest self-worth from. Um, you know, it's not necessarily from results because, you know, with if we're chasing results, you know, if we base our self-worth on results, we're always chasing. But if we're basing our self-worth on our intentions, you're never going to go wrong. Absolutely. Somebody said that to me one time, right? Oh, Ma- oh, yeah. Someone in the program said, Max, while you judge yourself by your intentions, the world's judging you by your actions. And I went, Oh, that hit right here. Right. Like, cause I thought I was, you know, this was before all my real, I thought I was doing great. And then it really clicked when he said that it's like, the world's not going to judge me by all the good things I say I'm going to do. They want to see what I am doing to be a better person. Right. They want to see if I'm leading by example and it's, you know, whether it's a programmer in life, right. Right. We got to lead by example, especially if we have little ones or kids or, Mm -hmm. you know, grandkids. Cause we're, you know, they're looking up to us like, Oh, how's, How's dad doing? I'm going to watch him for a while, right? Or grandpa, I'm going to watch him for a while, mm-hmm. right? And and I've learned that from some really great men in and out of the recovery community, right? And um, in the recovery and out of the recovery community. And they all lead, they all walk the walk and talk to talk to talk. And good stuff. You know, I try to do my best. Tell us what you're doing now. Tell us about your program and the services and the coaching that you offer now, because you're doing some amazing things. And, um, you know, you, I know you've written a book, which is awesome. And so you, you published your book, I think a year before I published mine. And so I, I know what it's like to, to go through and, and be an author. I mean, that's, that's, that's a remarkable feat just in and of itself. Cause having done that a couple of years ago, I know what goes into that. And that's, yeah, that's a lot some of work. work, as you know, that's some work, but it was good. I pro I was Mr. Procrastinator, but you know, and it was after my brother had passed when I was like, I got to get this book finished. Right. And so yeah, I wrote a book. It's called Fearless Happiness. The happiness has a why. My addiction, my battles for my recovery, and my coaching. Right. So I do, I do one-on-one coaching, and I'm actually beginning to build out some programs or some courses, right, uh, to help. But my main focus right now is the one-on-one coaching where I take, uh, you know, high performers, CEOs, executives, whatever you want to call them, and I 
I help them recover, right? So they don't lose what they work so hard to build, right? Because as you know, Doc, like addiction can take hold and then it's like a, it's like a tornado out of control, mm-hmm. right? It just everything. Yeah. And um, so I'm, I'm, I'm working on that. I've got that going. Like I said, I've got some courses or some group stuff I'm going to put together. And um, yeah, I'm in the process of like really getting back into uh, getting that out there. And um, cause I currently work my nine to five as a substance abuse counselor. And, you know, I'm, I still love doing that, but I want to be, I want to do my own thing. And it's not because I want to make a ton of money, right? I want that freedom. And you've heard it. I want the freedom to keep the promises I made to my wife. Cause we like to get into a little RV one day and just go travel the country. Sure. You know what I mean? Yeah, and be able to work from wherever absolutely. I go. I think it's the freedom and I think it's the chance also to, I mean, I mean, as as a practitioner, traditional setting, you're limited to the people that are you're seeing in your office or your geographical area, but you get in the coaching space, you can be coaching people all over the world. Absolutely. So your outreach grows exponentially by a gazillion times. And so, you know, you you got a great message and a lot more people get to share it and get to hear it and it can be spread and paid forward over and over again. Thank you. Where can everybody find you? So you can find me on Instagram. Um, I'm at maxnace underscore 2022. I'm on Facebook as max.nace. Uh, you can find me on LinkedIn. You can find me on Twitter. Uh, but the two most that I'm on are Facebook and Instagram. Or you can reach me at my website at website at maxnace.org. Excellent. Max, I can't thank you enough for being here. Uh, this has been incredible to hear your story and the journey that you've been on and um, just how you've been able to change the story. And I'm all about changing the story and changing the narrative and uh, what you've been able to do to change your story is just remarkable. I love what you're doing for the world and the people around you and uh, the message. And I I can't wait to see what you do in these uh, upcoming weeks, months, and years, because uh, I'm, uh, I'm super excited for you and uh, I'm proud of you, man. Thank you, doc. Thank you for having me. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. All right, folks, if you got some good nuggets from this conversation, if uh, if it's something that resonated with you, if you know somebody that can benefit from hearing about what Max and I were talking about today, please share the show. Go online to uh, Spotify and Apple. Leave a five-star review. But uh, please, if you know someone with addictions, point them in the right direction to get help. It's never too late. There's always time left in the game. And uh, yeah, you'd be surprised about what can happen and how, how quickly you can turn around. And sometimes you think that uh, what is going to disqualify you because you've had these problems in the past, it's going to disqualify you from ever doing anything or helping people. But having gone through these experiences is exactly what qualifies you to help someone go forward. So everybody make a great rest of your day. Go out and make somebody else's day better. And we will see you next time.